You are listening to Faith City Outreach with Marina Maria, founder of Global Gospel Worship Radio. Marina interviews local pastors and global leaders to share their testimonies and their ministries. Our goal is to help you follow what Jesus taught in Matthew 6:33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, here's our host, Marina Maria. Welcome to Faith City Outreach. This is Marina Maria with today's special guest, Pastor Barbara Miller from the Tabernacle of David and the Center for International Reconciliation and Peace in Carnes, Australia. Pastor Barbara is also a psychologist, sociologist, mediator, teacher, and writer. Pastor Barbara and her husband, Norman Miller, founded the Center for International Reconciliation and Peace. I am going to let Pastor Barbara share all about her latest bestseller book, Secrets and Lies, The Shocking Truth About Recent Australian Aboriginal History, a memoir. Pastor Barbara's book, Secrets and Lies, shares the inspiring stories of First Nations leaders, which gives them a voice and legacy. And even though many of them have passed on, their stories will live on as an inspiration to millions of people. Thank you, Pastor Barbara, for being on Faith City Outreach to share your latest bestseller book, The Shocking Truth About Recent Australian Aboriginal History, a memoir. Well, praise the Lord. I'm bringing a message today on the latest book I've written, but before I go into that, I actually want to uh, share a scripture which is very relevant, Isaiah 58, uh, verses 6 to 12. No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Isn't this beautiful? I love it. It's one of my most favorite scriptures. Then when you call, the Lord will answer, yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumours. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine forth from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. 
Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. I just love that scripture so much. And there's so much to unpack in it. But rather than unpack that particular scripture, I just wanted to start with it because it, uh, it really speaks to me so much and I pray it will speak to you. Now, the latest book I have written is called Secrets and Lies, The Shocking Truth of Recent Aboriginal History a memoir <laughs> and you might think how on earth would it relate to that well it really relates quite strongly um, to that so um, my book is also a memoir so it does cover my Christian journey as well and what it covers is uh, a period in the history of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Queensland, the state in Australia that I live, the far north, not the deep south. <laughs> and basically it, uh, it talks about issues like the, how the land was taken from Aboriginal people, how mining was forced on them, and I particularly start with uh, two uh, Aboriginal communities called Mornington Island and Arakoon that were started by the Moravian missionaries and then taken over, passed to, say, the Presbyterian Church and passed to the Uniting Church at the time of, um, of writing of this particular book. The Queensland Government under the Alki Peterson wanted to take over those two communities and so the Aboriginal people did not want to be taken over and there was a big um, fight with the State Government over it with the Church supporting the people. So I go into that with great um, depth because I was a player in the process of helping set up the North Queensland Land Council and um, working for the people uh, at the time, voluntarily advocating um, for them. So it's an amazing story because the voices of many of the elders who were no longer with us, uh, I was able to record at the time and they are in the book um, for the generations that follow to appreciate the voice of the elders. Uh, I also cover things like the Queensland Aborigines Act, um, which was uh, something that was against um, human rights. I can't go into details now. Uh, also talk about award wages, where there was uh, non-payment uh, of award wages to um, Indigenous people, and also the wages that they did have, many were put in a welfare fund and they had to go to the police station and try and get little bits um, out of their bank book at a, at, a, at a time. So stolen wages is a big issue. Also, um, deaths in custody. We know that this has been, been a big issue in the States with Black Lives Matter. There's been a similar thing um, in Australia. But we don't actually have more 
Indigenous people dying in custody as compared to white people. What the issue is, the extremely high rates of Indigenous um, incarceration. And so closing the gap is also another issue that I discuss with the great inequality between Indigenous or First Nations people and the rest of Australia on a whole lot of areas like health, um, housing, uh, income, education, etc. And uh, so there's still work on that Closing the Gap program. And also it's right up to date with the current discussions on Voice Treaty Truth. So having the voice of our First Nations people come out, there's no treaty in Australia and there's the push for treaty um, and also um, having the truth of history be known and which for a lot of um, uh, non-Indigenous Australians there's quite a lot of uh, lack of knowledge about the real history. So that's kind of where I'm going um, with that particular book. So I think what's really important is that my Christian faith was what brought me into the position of being, you might say, an advocate or, or activist for social justice. And very much I have devoted my life to the Christian message and also working for racial equality. And so that comes out um, in the book. And you might think, well, why would you do that? And I want to point to um, Psalm 89.14, where it says that justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. And uh, also Amos 5.24, when it says that you know, righteousness and justice flow on like a river, like a never-failing stream. So those scriptures have been very uh, fundamental um, to my journey, and there's many more that can be found as I read Isaiah 58, for example, before. So the other scripture that's been very much um, part of my journey, and mind you, uh, part of Norman's journey too, and much of this relates to him as well, uh, is Galatians 3.28. I'm going to read that. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, you might think, why is that such an important scripture? Well, basically the, um, the teaching of Marxism, for example, um, is that these are all the areas in which people are discriminated against. And, and obviously, um, historically, there has been discrimination of um, in these particular areas of, um, of race and class and sex. And you know, today, this whole gender thing has come to the fore as well. But you know, Jesus or Yeshua is the answer because he's saying that in Christ, we don't have these divisions. And so this scripture has been something that has really um, guided me and also we know in Ephesians it talks about Jesus breaking down the dividing walls and as Norman mentioned in his prayer earlier how important it is for um, Christians to dwell together in unity 
as it talks about in Psalm 133. So I still have a very um, big um, emphasis in my life on righteousness and justice. The emphasis on, on reconciliation, however, has grown stronger over the years and as you know, Norman and I founded the Centre for International Reconciliation and Peace. And um, our guiding scripture for that is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. So therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So that's really for everybody, not just for us. We all have the ministry of reconciliation. We all have the message of reconciliation to bring. Part of that is reconciliation of people um, to our Heavenly Father, and that's the vertical, and the horizontal reconciliation is reconciliation of each of us to, to one another. And uh, the, you know, the Bible also says that um, if someone else has something against us, we need to go and make it right, then come back and lay our gift at the altar. Even if it's um, a perception on their part and we actually haven't done anything wrong, we need to go and try and make it right. So how did I practically do the activism um, in the early days and how do I do it now? Well, in the early days I did things like, um, for example, just sitting down um, with First Nations people and finding out what they wanted and, and what kind of, how they wanted um, that kind of support. Also press releases, um, editing a uh, newspaper that came out regularly, um, lobbying government, uh, organising rallies and uh, you know this involved going to parliament at times too uh, and lobbying directly and also I was a co-founder of the North Queensland Land Council back in January 1977 it founded after previously being a committee for two years before that and then later on CEO of the Aboriginal Coordinating Council um, which was the peak body for all the land-based local government Aboriginal communities in Queensland to advise state and federal government. So very um, uh, high level of being able to do advocacy and so, and so I also did a lot of um, research with that and submissions to Parliament on legislation, etc. How do I do it today? <laughs> well, um, basically, um, Norman and I founded the, uh, the uh, Centre for International Reconciliation and Peace. We've had a lot of reconciliation events um, where we stand in for groups that are relevant to us and say sorry and I can't go into that in detail but um, all of the above as well 
Um, and these days, of course, we add social media to the mix, don't we? Um, I, wish, <laughs> I wish I had a mobile phone in the old days to be able to record a lot of the things that I'm able to record today. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I have tried to make up for that in my book of telling that story. And so um, praying is a big thing these days as well. I do a lot more of that today than previously. And also uh, Norman and I meeting, um, hosting prayer groups, one of those being GAP, um, Gathering Apostolic Prophetic Network, where we pray for government. Um, Ezekiel um, 22.30 talks about standing in the gap. And so uh, things like Australia Day prayer events, for example, because we know that that's a contentious point for First Nations people because um, the day it's associated with the day of first settlement in this nation, which is a day of dispossession. So that just gives you an, ex an idea. Now, in 1995, uh, basically, uh, and, uh, working against anti-Semitism and replacement theology in the church is something that we added to this. And how that happened is uh, Norman and I were in Brisbane. We went uh, to a United Church that had advertised a reconciliation meeting. There was an Anglican priest running it, and as we walked in the door, he prophesied over us that we didn't even have to do anything about reconciliation. We were living, walking reconciliation. When we spoke to him after the meeting, he said, if you really want to work on racial um, uh, reconciliation, what you need to do is go back to um, where the, the enemy of our souls got the... Um, inroads in a sense or the platform to be able to cause racial divisions and that is the original division between Jew and Gentile. So since then, since 1995, that's been an important part of our ministry as well. Now, when you have a look at uh, what I spoke about before being in the book about um, stolen wages and lack of award wages, etc., there's a number of scriptures on that. One of them is James 5.4, and uh, the Bible says, look, the wages you failed to pay to the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now, there's many other scriptures, Jeremiah 22.13, etc., but, you know, this is so important because it led to intergenerational poverty um, and uh, issues that First Nations people face today in terms of health, housing, education, income, really, in social mobility issues. So those things about closing the gap have really been affected um, by those uh, stolen wages. So 
Another scripture that you may well be familiar with is uh, removing the boundary stone. And when we look at uh, the land of uh, First Nations people being taken from them, I think this is quite a relevant one. Proverbs 22, 28, don't cheat your neighbor by moving the ancient boundary markers set up by previous generations. You know, the, the word of God is, is very strong. You know, when you look through the Old Testament and again in the New Testament, you just see um, how much the Lord wants to protect um, the widows, the, the orphans, the, um, the sojourners or aliens in the land and um, protecting uh, even workers from being taken advantage of. So oppression, oppression is actually taken from a Latin word which means to press against, uh, to squeeze and to suffocate. It makes me think of that python spirit when it talks about squeezing. Of course we can have religious persecution or oppression as well. So oppression can come from an authoritarian state against all the people or it can even be in a democratic state against a group of, of people. So it's something we need, you know, when you have a look there's a huge number of uh, scriptures um, in the Bible on oppression and I'll just give you some of them. Uh, Isaiah 1.17, Judges 2.18, Luke 11.42, Proverbs 14.31, Leviticus 6.1-7. Uh, I won't go, I won't read them all but I'm going to read that Jeremiah 22.3. This is what the Lord says, do what is just and right Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. So, you know, the Lord is quite strong about these uh, issues. Psalm 99, uh, lovely scripture, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, uh, a stronghold in times of trouble. Romans 13.1 tells us that we need to submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Um, Paul in Timothy tells us to pray for authorities. So this is important that we do that. Uh, there may be occasions and we really have to hear from the Lord uh, before going down this track um, where we need to obey God rather than man. Okay, Acts 5, 28 to 29 says, and this is actually um, when the apostles were um, preaching and the religious authorities um, of the time forbade them to do so. And they said, well, we have to obey God rather than man. So they said, we give you strict orders not to teach in this name. He said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us responsible for this man's blood. But Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. 
So, you know, I think this is, I just include this because I think this is something we need to grapple with because when we see unjust laws, um, we really need to hear from the Lord how we are to deal with it because those authorities even, you know, we even had a very unjust law, I believe, passed in Queensland uh, yesterday, the voluntary assisted dying law, which we actively campaigned against. Um, unfortunately, it got through. So there are unjust laws and uh, the Catholic Church has actually said they're not going to cooperate with it. So I think this is, you know, an example where these scriptures we need to look at carefully. I just wanted to um, give a couple of examples. Um, William Wilberforce, in, in uh, working against slavery, uh, it took him a long time. Um, he was in the British Parliament, part of a group of um, Christians who worked against slavery in the whole of the British Empire and were successful. A very, very huge um, shift that occurred in the history of the world. Um, so that was how he worked legislatively. Um, another example I'd bring, like to bring up is Judas, and you know that Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus or Yeshua. Um, he was part of the um, zealots. So their way of doing things was to have insurrection against the Roman Empire who was um, occupying um, at the time. I think what we need to look at from that is that what we're really working for as Christians is the Kingdom of God. And I think, you know, Jesus made that clear at the time that his Kingdom was not of this earth. You know, we, we need to um, work to try and bring about godly laws in our nation and godly policies in our nation and have it as close to the Kingdom of God as we can, but ultimately we are not working for a Kingdom on Earth. We're working for the Kingdom of Heaven. And one day we know um, that Yeshua will be coming back, our Messiah, and uh, we will have a thousand-year millennial reign from Jerusalem that will be the Kingdom of Heaven on Earth. Until then, we're going to be working with um, or living with imperfect situations. So we do our best to transform society, but in the end, we know God is in control. And when things happen that we're not happy about, we just have to trust God is in control. Um, you know, one of the parables of um, Jesus and Yeshua, he talked about the wheat and the tears growing up together. And so we will see an increase of good and an increase of evil in our days. But you know, one day, those tears or those weeds are going to be pulled out and uh, put into the fire. I think it's important um, to remember Joshua 5:13 to 14. Uh, this is so important because we need to look whose side are we on. You know, sometimes we might be tempted to align ourselves so much with a political party, for example, that we lose sight that we need to be on God's side. Um, 
And so this scripture is quite pertinent, I think. We need to lay party politics on the altar. So Joshua 5, 13 to 14. Um, now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. So Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua realised it was the Lord himself, and so he fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? You know, so it's so important for us, you know, I think one of the things that's happened in, in the USA, for example, with the recent um, elections there with Trump and Biden, is um, Christians got caught up with aligning themselves too closely with political parties. Um, but we need to, we need to look at this, we need to um, know that the commander of the army of the Lord is not on the side of any political parties, even though I know there's great distress at some of the things that are happening um, in the US uh, today. So, I wanted just to go back to my book for a moment, then I'll go to some of the more general matters. I just want to bring up one example in there. Um, it was a real battle between church and state in around about 1978, 1979 um, in Queensland, and I was quite involved with that. Part of it was that in Brisbane, some Uniting Church ministers and Catholic and Anglican priests got together to um, have a rally or vigil in the church grounds uh, and in the centre of Brisbane and say that uh, you know they were upset at the Queensland government, the Bielke Peterson government wanting to um, take over Arakoon and Mornington Island Aboriginal communities against their will and throw the church out against the will of the people uh, because the church was supporting the people's aspirations. I can't go into more details. So what happened? I think it's amazing what happened. Uh, the, the police came along and threatened to um, arrest them if they didn't stop singing and then pushed them onto the footpath so they were on a public place so they could arrest them. And so those who hadn't been arrested already um, stopped singing the Christian um, songs and started humming them instead and so they were arrested as well. And uh, it was recorded in the uh, uh, newspaper in Brisbane. So, you know, that kind of thing uh, it's incredible that it could happen, but it has. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's one of the stories I have in the book. Uh, it was really interesting many years ago when Norman and I were in Israel, some of the Africans were saying to us, look, when the missionaries came here to Africa, they said to us, you know, don't mix um, church with politics. And so what happened? 
um, Islam took over our, uh, many of our governments in Africa and they were quite upset about that. And, uh, you know, in, in recent years we've, we've, we've seen um, a big change um, in the church attitudes there toward that mix of church and state, and particularly, I believe, in the US. But Brian Pickering, um, the head of the Australian Prayer Network, said something many years ago that Norman and I remembered because we thought it was quite insightful. And he said, um, the church only has one key to open up the community. There's another key, and that's the government key. And you really need both. Um, and I would like to add to that that traditional um, owners of the land, First Nations people, that they have a key as well, that they have authority in the land. And so when we've had um, prayer events actually on um, the land, we've often tried to have, for example, in, in, uh, in Atherton, we had the mayor um, as well as the church and traditional owners as we prayed. So you've got those um, three levels of authority operating. Now, I'll just watch my time, but I've got a couple more things I wanted to say because I, I really think they're relevant. And although I'm not probably specifically saying so much about the book I wrote, Secrets and Lives, because I'm addressing a Christian audience, I'm, I'm really looking at a lot of the um, scriptural basis and I'm looking at a lot of the um, broader um, principles and implications, okay? So one of the things I, I think is an interesting comment is um, in Australia, when we have elections here, um, we, we don't very often find from the pulpit pastors saying who to vote for, and I think that's a good thing. Um, but what we do have is some prayer ministries, um, what they do, which I also think is a good thing, is that they do a survey um, of the candidates for various um, electorates and ask them what their opinion is on various um, principles and values that are dear to Christians and then they publish the, um, the answers. So that is a, a guide um, for Australian Christians in, in voting is to actually see what, what uh, attitudes and, and values the MPs have. So what I really want to um, end on is something that's really concerned me um, for some time and uh, it's that Christians are very much uh, divided and you would think you would think that because we have a biblical worldview that we because of our hearts toward God that there'd be a lot more unity um, in the body of Christ or uh, Messiah, but really that's not the case. In fact, um, there's probably all, always been divisions there, and we can see that when we look at, um, at the Bible, but 
I think it's growing worse. And one of the things is the left-right divide. And so I just want to just address that um, briefly. And it, it something, for example, um, people on the Christian left uh, would be particularly interested in race, um, gender, sexuality, um, poverty, for instance. People on the Christian right might be more interested in abortion, euthanasia, and uh, traditional views of marriage. And uh, so we, we saw quite a schism in the church on the same-sex marriage debate in Australia a few years ago, and I believe it's been growing uh, since then. And so we know that um, the Bible tells us quite clearly that a house divided itself can't stand. And, uh, you know, there are factions. It talks, there are a number of scriptures about factions in the Bible. We look at Acts 23, 7, 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 13. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 to 19 actually mentions factions. Um, Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. But I'm actually going to read 1 Corinthians 3, 3. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? And uh, so I have to say I've got a great concern about the divisions in the church with regard to left and right. I mean, I firstly encountered this at university um, many, many, many years ago when I was studying because I found that I was um, probably considered left on social issues and right on moral issues. Now, I don't know how many Christians find themselves in that situation, um, but there probably are some that we haven't heard about. And I, I, think it's, um, I think it's a real issue. You know, I refuse to be put in, in boxes. Uh, I just want to stand up for, for biblical values. So, you know, it's interesting. Even within um, the ALP, you've got left and right. Even within uh, the Liberals, you've got left and right. No doubt in the USA, even between Democrats, you've got left and right. And even between Republicans, you've, Republicans, you've probably got left and right. So um, one of the things I want to do is try to get into what is the spiritual basis for such a defining difference that can really bring such great division into the body of um, Christ or Messiah and so that's still on my agenda. I just want to mention a couple more things in, in finishing. Uh, you've probably been hearing about um, critical um, race theory. Um, it was basically the offspring of a post-civil um, rights um, movement um, of institutional activism opposed to racial power. So basically post-civil rights in the US, they found that even though legal 
segregation and discrimination was removed, um, there were still issues with, with race in the US. And so um, this movement uh, developed. Um, now, interestingly, you know, I'm actually a sociologist as well um, by, by my education. And when I was studying at La Trobe University um, in the 80s, uh, notions like institutional racism or structural racism were quite accepted right back then, before this critical race theory came about. And um, it does exist. We can't say it doesn't exist. So, um, look, even for myself, um, when I was a single mum at one point with an Aboriginal child, long time ago now, um, I would ring up real estate agents looking for a place to rent and told it was available, but when I turn up, it suddenly was not available because they saw I had an Aboriginal child. Now, um, compound that when you've got an Aboriginal family turning up, um, you know, usually an ex you know, uh, extended family turning up, the difficulty of being able to rent a property, um, even in terms of um, being hired by to get a job. So just to tease out quickly, because I need to pass on, to tease out quickly the difference between personal racism and institutional or structural racism. Just taking one example of a real estate agent, um, if you have a person in a real estate agent who is racist and so one um, rent out a property to a First Nations family. That's personal racism. But if the real estate agency had a policy um, that all their staff had to follow, that they couldn't rent out to a First Nations family, then that's structural or institutional racism. And I think we need to know that it does exist and still today and has existed for a long time, although it's nowhere near as bad as what it used to be. So um, I'm not saying I go along with critical race theory uh, by any means, uh, but I'm saying that institutional racism, structural racism does exist. So um, woke is a new term which you've probably heard about quite a bit lately. And um, it simply means being aware um, of, of racism that's how it started and uh, it's been extended now to other social justice issues. Um, it was actually popularised by the Marxist founders of Black Lives Matter. Um, so it sounds noble in its meaning but I think we need to look and, and I'm not, you know, when it comes to Black Lives Matter, I've said before, Black Lives do matter. All lives do matter. Jewish lives matter. You know, everybody's life matters. Um, so, and some people will stay on racist for saying that. Uh, let them do that. But I think what we need to look at is also the difference between cultural Marxism and um, Christians working for racial equality. 
And so I think we come from a very, very um, different um, point of view. And I'm going to actually quote here from Eternity News, a Christian magazine, because this will show you a little bit about where this cultural Marxism comes from. Now, some people say, okay, it's a conspiracy theory, it's anti-Semitic, etc. But when you have a look at it, it's a very clever way of attacking Judeo-Christian values and the very basis of our um, Western society that's been built on Judeo-Christian values. So as Christians, we need to know what's happening. So uh, quoting from uh, Eternity News, there was someone called Gramsci and while he never used the term cultural Marxism, he's kind of the father of it. And what he decided was that culture is not downstream from economics, but economics is downstream from culture. So I'm quoting again, the significance of this inversion of classical Marxism is profound. What it means that if you want to change the economic structure of society, you must first change the cultural institutions that socialise people into believing and behaving according to the dictates of the capitalist system. The only way to do this is by cutting the roots of Western civilization, in particular its Judeo-Christian values, for these supposedly are what provide the capitalist root system. In short, unless and until Western culture is de-Christianised, Western society will never be decapitalized. And I'm going to repeat that because I think we, you know, we really need to get a handle on it. Um, cultural Marxism, which is an adaption of traditional Marxism, is basically saying unless Western culture is de-Christianised, Western society will never be decapitalized, which is their aim. I mean, really communism and socialism has never really worked for the people. But anyhow, that's another story. So how might this be accomplished? This is a quote again from Eternity Magazine. By an army of Marxist intellectuals undertaking um, what was later called Quote, the long march through the institutions of power. End of quote, that's inside a quote. That is by gradually colonising and ultimately controlling all the key institutions of civil society. As Gramsci put it, in the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. And so we see this um, happening in uh, the US and uh, in Australia um, and uh, we, nearly, we really need to be awake up to it um, because it's, it's one of the things that's um, chasing the church out of the public square um, in Australia. Um, and uh, also intimidating Christians that if you put forward a Christian or biblical point of view, 
you're racist or sexist or um, classist or capitalist or whatever it might be, um, or some sort of phobia. So uh, we really need to um, know what we're dealing with um, here. And, uh, you know, I don't think that shaming little white boys in some Australian schools for being white and male is going to help with racial harmony or justice. This is the kind of thing that we are dealing with. And so, while my um, message today goes a lot further than the Secrets and Lies book that I have just published with the subtitle, The Shocking Truth of Recent Aboriginal History, a memoir, I think um, a lot of the because in a sense it also talks, while it's very much focused on Aboriginal um, policy um, and the changes that have occurred up till today, it's also a memoir of mine. And so very much as a Christian, um, I think my message today just basically looks at, well, what were my motivations then and now and um, what journey I've taken and like I said before some of the broader um, principles and issues that could be raised from reading a book like mine that are very relevant to the society that we live in today. So thank you, God bless you. You've been listening to Faith City Outreach with Marina Maria, founder of Global Gospel Worship Radio. Join us next time as Marina interviews local pastors and global leaders to share their testimonies and their ministries. All music is courtesy of zapsplat.com, and our thanks goes out to Four Winds Ministries in Arizona for partnering with Faith City Outreach. If you'd like to support this ministry, just go to fcoprogram.com and click the donate button. Thanks for listening. Have a blessed day.